Hello, and welcome back to All My Darlings, Volume 3 of Miss Macintosh, My Darling. And we are going to be looking at love. One announcement, uh, uh, Volume 2 is done, and I didn't think I'd be able to offer it free until January. And I checked again, and sure enough, um, I there was a waiting period when I could enroll it, and, and, and I could, and I could start it. So I'm going to make Volume 1 and Volume 2 free in December. Merry Christmas. Um, December 12th through the 16th. I'm going to be putting up a notice on uh, Twitter, maybe sending out some, tw uh, some Twitter tweets, and um, I don't know where else I can put it up. That's pretty much it. Um, yeah, but so volume one and volume two, which is like 1,200 pages, uh, but about a 1,200-page book. I know that's ridiculous, but it works for me anyways. Um, but yeah, those will be free on Kindle. Uh, December 12th through the 16th, 2022. Mark your calendars, but then of course I'll also announce it here. And I'm going to try and tag some people on Twitter. So hopefully it'll, it'll get the word out. Um, thanks to, I think it's Dr. Shaviro. I'm sorry, I think he's a professor. Um, I'm not sure where, but he's the one that did the reading group in 2019 that I joined where I first found out about Ms. McIntosh or was first attempted to read it. And um, so, yeah, he was really nice, and he uh, talked to him in his group on Facebook, which is still there. His notes that he made from the book are still there, and I'm thinking about going back through that because he asked some really good questions um, and just some ways to think about, uh, different ways to think about the book. Um, and he was real, he was real nice and real supportive, so kudos to him. Um, so, love. This is one of the longest sections. I don't know if it's because I couldn't just pull out little snippets if I had, uh, I don't know, but it ended up being the longest section, basically. And you thought marriage was long, you thought mother was long, love is longer. Um, Young dedicates her book to all the dead loves, and it's more, the entire quote is to all the dead loves and something, something, something. Um, oh, to all the dead loves and remembered things I have traveled many seas. It's something like that. That's the dedication of the book. Well, I found where that exact line is in the book. So, uh, and I marked it so we'll, we'll be able to see it. The word itself is used over 1400 times, uh, since love does appear in other words, mostly glove. There's a lot of gloves. It is packed throughout the book, except for a couple of areas where it is conspicuously absent and one big and several smaller areas where it is densely used. So the word runs through the entire book. Um, it's one of the most most used words that I could actually like pull out and, and see. Um, other one, uh, other words, you know, they make up what the word makes up other words as part of other words so it's impossible to see like the the breakdown of it in the book but this one you can i mean glove is the only one only other one there was beloved but even that was just used a couple of times um so i counted about 16 small dense areas where it was just repeated 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 the largest densest area was with mr spitzer and cousin hannah because cousin hannah has lost her love on her deathbed um, Mr. Spitzer is uh, watching while uh, keeping watch while she dies, and she's uh, talking about her lost love, dead love, and we'll get into that. And so that is where we have the densest area um, concentration of, of where it's used. Let's see if we can. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Vera opens the novel with her quest to Miss Mackintosh, one not beloved then so much as now in memory. Her search in this novel is for life, for love, for truth that does not fail. So that is the purpose of the novel. She is searching for life, love, and truth that does not fail. That's why I call this like a coming-of-age story. Um, this is the quest. I mean, there's, there's multiple intertextuality. There's multiple other books that are referenced. They're all built around quests. Um, and she reiterates this at another, uh, another point. She reads through a dead girl's love letters scattered on the floor, and that is why she started her quest. She reached for life the unreachable. 
Catherine takes to her bed because all those who she loved had abandoned her, the ghost of love she loved the most. Mr. Spitzer loved Catherine, and she had not returned his love. He had always compassionately, profoundly loved one for whom he would have sacrificed his life, his being, his own best interests. He loved her more than his dead brother Perone had hated her. His love of an ultimate, unbaffled harmony, the silent music. Catherine, the power of love to alter animate things and make them live. Mr. Spitzer, by offering his hand in marriage, wanted them to retire from the world so he could write music, harmonies, temporal, which he might encompass with the harmony divine, the omniscience of love. Miss McIntosh, her energetic life, which rejected self-love or the love of any other person. Pharaoh felt time died when my love died, meaning Miss McIntosh. I'm going to split this up a little bit because, trust me, it gets long. I'm trying to split it up by kind of sections. So this is all the beginning section between Mr. Spit Vera, Mr. Spitzer, Catherine. So it goes back and forth and then it kind of settles down to some big sections. Um, Catherine, her mother, offered her opium. Let's see, offered Vera. Oh, of Alfred Vera opium to escape time and the harsh reality of life, and Vera saw this as her mother's greatest act of love, the only sign that she had a child. Her acceptance of me when I was no more, her acknowledgement that I existed only when I had ceased to exist, her offering me oblivion as if I were born into death. I had bypassed... Oh. This I had bypassed this world and all its wondrous experience. Her offering to me as something merely curative, the opium paradise which should bring the power of wakeful sleep, of sleeping wakefulness, that great play of illusion which must take the place of the world thereafter, all things changing their forms, their shapes, all things blurred as if seen underwater. So I wanted to include that whole, this is where I ran into problems instead of just, you know, <clears throat> Just including like the greatest act of love, I wanted to I wanted to include the other because how I mean, it just seems so desolate. I mean, you basically don't have a mother, and the mother's greatest act is to obliviate you, and that's just so punishing. That's just so hard. Um, that's a hard thing to write. So I'm so uh, to be negated by your mother, and then where do you go? Like you're basically an orphan. So I understand that, and and then what do you do? And that was considered, and Vera considered considered that Catherine's her mother's greatest act of love. So really hard stuff. Um, Vera for the night had brought my love, and the night had taken my love. Side story of the young woman who told everyone she was getting married and then jumped off a bridge, perhaps because of the love which would always change its face, the love of which the only face was a cloud. The fat, soft-faced lady at the bus station, love had never been unique, one man being like another, and love could always repeat itself. So she's getting these different, so she gets that from her mother. Um, and Vera, I think here, let me add this. She's referencing Miss McIntosh here. Uh, Vera talking about Miss McIntosh. For the night had brought my love, and the night had taken my love. So she found out the truth about Miss McIntosh at night, but that, and then also overnight, that's when Miss McIntosh walked into the the sea and died. And then there's then then she tells this side story of this young about this young woman, and then Vera also meets the soft faced lady, and that's when the lady tells her, "Man, eh, love's not." Love's not unique. You can find it anywhere. So she's so Catherine's ob obliterated her. Um, that's the only thing she can get from her. And so she's collecting these stories about love because that's what her search is for from these other people. The first dense area. Uh, let me see. The first dense area of use of. A word 
<laughs> what? what? Recording? Like doing the. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really? As cold as it is? You're so mean to me. The first dense area of the use of the word is with Madge and Homer's subplot. For never would she be stretched out so that the great lover could take her. Should she be wakened now, made to feel the feelings she had never felt, to believe in the life she had never loved, had only seemed to love. She had paid for the ghostly triangle which would destroy her marriage, for his love would be dead. Madge continues about how Homer loves Jacqueline, a fellow classmate who died of tuberculosis. Madge describes her marriage. They were married because love was impossible for them. If they had loved, they would never have married. Homer does not understand that Madge's father was the rival for her dead love. So Madge's father, uh, when at least when Madge was a, an adult, I would say 18. It wasn't, it, thank goodness, wasn't younger. Um, she was 18 or at least 18, I believe. Um, the wife had died during childbirth and the father decided, went into Madge's bedroom and decided she looked exactly like her mother and tried to crawl into bed with her. So that was the, that's the rival. Madge, you were prejudiced and love is blind. Lover, love never sees our faults as you see mine. For there is a quality of impatience in love, the darkest love, dark without a moon. Madge describes flirting with the old glacier who threatened she could put the glaze of death he should put the glaze of death over her eyes if she did not love him as he loved her. So just casual, you know, threats there. Madge about Homer. But would this poor boy know of a former love unless his wife reminded him that though love could never die, the object of his love might die, might change, might alter her looks. So we're talking about the... So this is something that goes on that, like, you have the... Uh, so the Christian thing, uh, love is always kind, always faithful, always... Um, I can't remember the exact quote from the Bible, and so this, you have this where they're going on about the mutability of love, that love isn't, isn't steadfast, isn't true, isn't something you can count on. It changes over time. The object of his love might die, might, yeah, alters looks. And was that love which did not die, change, alter, grow old with time? This her make a bunch of noise. I know, he's so cute. Nice you, baby boy. When do you get for lunch? Honey. Honey. When do you go for lunch? Okay, good. Okay, I got time. I was wondering. Got it. Um, I was wondering if I had time to go grab lunch. Okay. To get this done before. <laughs> to get through love, hopefully, before I have to go to lunch. Okay. So... Okay, and was that love which did not die, change, alter, grow old with time? So there's that question about love. Um, uh, how can you love if... Um, though love could never die, the object of his love might die, might change, might alter her looks. So can you still love something that is going to die, change, uh, grow old with time? You use the love you never loved as your excuse for never loving any woman on earth. Madge doesn't want to talk about the future because death was her first lover, death was her first husband, and her last. And that's a big thing too. Death and love go hand in hand. Madge tells Homer you will love her more when you carry her in your arms, when she is dead, when she is forgotten by everyone but you. That is your kind of love. She accused. Always the love that comes too late, the love you could not love. It is a love that does nobody any good, neither the love nor the loved. You will love her more when she is dead. The dead will remember you. The dead will remember you when you have forgotten her. You never loved her who was outside yourself, and you only thought you did. You never loved him. And then, would you love me as you think you loved her? Or would you even know the difference between us? Or would there always be the three of us, yourself, her, and her? Homer Jackson says he wouldn't love Jacqueline if Madge didn't keep bringing it up, and that he is shy and quite helpless in his love. Um... I don't know this one because it doesn't sound like I have a right pronoun here. So you never loved her, was that saying you only thought you did? Okay, well, there's 
Yes. Um, home, okay. Uh, he claims all the boys loved her and no one knew who Jacqueline really loved. Madge says, so what is your immortal love if you have already forgotten her? Will you remember me when I am gone? Homer thought Madge was jealous of nothing. The living should not be jealous of the dead. The dead did not love. Homer describes his feelings for Jacqueline as an old puppy love affair. Homer says his love and the other boys for Jacqueline was not in a fleshy or earthly way. It was something that could not be defined. It was like his youth, his life, his love. This sounds similar to Mr. Spitzer's love for Catherine. Because... Homer, no lover saw a lady as she was, besides what was more beautiful than an aging face through which one saw the face that one. Okay. No lover saw a lady as she was, besides what was more beautiful than an aging face through which one saw the face that one had loved. Imagine. That's nice. (laughs) That's a romantic way of looking at it. And so right now it sounds similar to Mr. Spitzer's love for Catherine, but Mr. Spitzer's, but we'll get into Mr. Spitzer's love because he goes into it in more detail. So it does change. Madge, even though you spend all your life without loving anyone, you die for love. No one escapes. Madge accuses Homer of evading the responsibility for human love. Madge hints that there was something wrong with Jacqueline's family. Their love was too great. It was something awful the way that family loved each other and the way that old man loved all his daughters and loves his only son. Loves the ghostly reaper now. He asks not what flower he reaps or where or when or why. Agony was the only love. Madge describes her father had always been fearful of him. Who was her father more fearful of him than any stranger? For she had always known in her heart of hearts that he had always loved her. And she had feared his kiss more than his blow. Madge, what man was ever faithful to the image of a woman's love? Madge's jealousy was just a woman's jealousy of something she could never know, the love of a man for a woman. Madge talks about the side story of Gertrude, Rudolph, and old Josh. Gertrude is accused by town gossip of killing... I'll say gossips. Of killing both brothers after she married them. Gertrude and Rudolph are described as not in love with each other, but both loved the brother Josh, and that is why she killed Rudolph. This sounds similar to liverite marriage, which is a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow. Liverite marriage has been practiced by societies with a strong clan structure in which marriage outside the clan is forbidden. It has been a practice in different religions and countries. Next match gossips about Musadora and her children. Homer defends Musadora. Nobody ought to interfere with a mother's love. It's bigger than all of us. From the beautiful passage of Vera in the garden, without eyelids, one would stare at the face of one's love even as one stares at death until another closes his eyes, for dead men are usually fond, are usually found with their eyes open. Okay, there's, so there's a beautiful passage of Vera in the garden, but this without eyelids, one would stare at the face of one's love. It's a little creepy, uh, even as one stares at death. <laughs> Vera, when she is young, believes that all love was in a look. So, um, here, let me split this up. I have to split this and connect this um so so Vera has no let's see so because we would think of the traditional ways that we would find so think of the traditional ways that that a child would find the answers to life truth or some kind of guidance to love the meaning of life absolute truth and so Right away, Young has stripped that. Like the the mother, the family connection is not there. That's not there for Vera. Um, it's not possible for her to do that. Uh, so when you have, so that's so the uh, family tradition because children are are, are likely to be inf- likely to be influenced from their parents until they go to school and then. You know, of course, peers can take over and all change that as well. But still, that tradition of, of your family will guide you. That's especially through uh, um, the expectations of mothers at the time. They are the ones who are going to, or they're responsible for your spiritual um, life, raising good children. I mean, that, that burden fell to the mother. And so it was considered a family, you know, a family responsibility, but the burden also primarily fell on the mother because she raised the children. 
so that was the expectation. So that is so young immediately, you know, very beginning of the novel takes that away. That's not available. So then you kind of have Vera as this omniscient narrator, just hovering over, just like searching through the different ways and hearing and taking in all the stuff that she's hearing. Like, okay, is this the answer? Is this what I'm hearing? And yeah, no, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, uh, she's here. Well, uh, I don't know. For a long time, she's, here. you know, that's a good question. Like, how does she come to the end where she's like, oh, yeah, I think like she hears all of this stuff. It's a good thing to ponder all of this stuff from all these different adults and saying, like, I don't know. I don't know how, you know, to find these things in life and the adults that I'm supposed to rely on are not available. And then so just hearing and picking up, you know, all these different things. And then what happens? I, I marry someone who's not who's not perfect, who can't be perfect because my life wasn't perfect or, or the world is not perfect. And then I'm going to go ahead and, and follow, a, maybe not love, but I'm going to follow at least the natural way of like why human, let's see, like the natural instinct, like so the natural instinct of humans, we're here to reproduce and pass on our genes. Um and so that's kind of what we're left with at the end of the book. Um, from the beautiful path... Okay, I did that one. Sorry, I had to put these two together. Vera, when she is young, believes that all love was in a look. If I knew love, I would not dream of death. Vera believes that true love comes only once in a lifetime. That every other love is but the echo, hollow and thin and reedy, that I should prefer when love was over, the silence. So, true love only comes once. One who could know us and yet love us was undoubtedly the truest love this world has ever seen. What would it be like to be old and unloved? It was hard enough to be young and unloved as I was, to waste one's sweetness in the desert air, but at least the future was mine. So Miss Macintosh, love, what was love? How should Miss Macintosh know what love was? She could only guess, her face blurred by watery vagueness. Oh, yes. Here. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is why she wanted. I don't know what she wanted. She just wants to go to your bedroom. Just let her stay there. The, the boys passed out. He didn't even see her. She's going outside. Oh, okay. Well, she can go outside, too. Okay, toss her out. I think she wanted to go out earlier, but she, of course, you know, her fear of doors. Boots, boots, boots killed a cardinal and put it on the porch. I'm going to say it's boots because she went out earlier. She's the only one who's been out. Yeah. Boots said, here, eat. Here, cardinal. No, I'm like, not the cardinals. The sparrows want to impress me. Catch a chickadee. I've never, they've never caught a chickadee. Yeah, you missed it. You were asleep, silly. The girl came and left. You missed the girl. She was here. <laughs> they hate him. <laughs> the, the two older girls hate the boy. Just hate him. Um, okay, sorry, I was full of interruptions. Okay, she could only guess her face blurred by watery vagueness. Love was not an inquiry beyond what meets the natural eye. Love was undoubtedly greatest love which could see another's face in daylight and hear another's voice. There was no better test than harsh experience. So Vera has come up with her own version of what she thinks love is, and then Miss McIntosh also adds her, adds her, her two cents. Catherine, one should see his lover's face, but never hear his voice speaking farewell. Mr. Pitzer talks about Catherine's love for his dead brother, but not for him. Catherine, the undying love of the one Mr. Spitzer seemed too near the undying hatred of the other Mr. Spitzer. Mr. Spitzer sometimes thought that Catherine's love for his dead brother was also her love for him. Miss McIntosh, death loves a young maid and an old man. Death loves a shining mark. Vera describes her horse Falada, a present from Mr. Spitzer, as my rose, my heart, my love. Miss McIntosh says when she attacks Vera after foreseeing her bald, an old man's love is a young maid's sorrow, and so I always told you. Oh, where was my love? God loves you. God loves the wind, the empty places, 
There is no God. There was no God, but the true lover remembers everything, and the true love is that which does not alter when it alteration finds. So again, we're playing on that Christian... What is that? It's the Corinthians... Oh, I never did find that other one. Love is patient and kind. Love is an envy or boast. Uh, it's not arrogant or rude. So that's the, yeah, that's 1 Corinthians. So it's kind of a play. It seems to be a play on that Corinthians about love. Oh, and this one is also the poem. I don't know what I'm thinking. This is also the poem. This has got to be the poem, Shakespeare's poem. Love does not alter. Let me see. Uh, love does not alter when an alteration finds sonnet 116. Yeah, that's what it is to play on Shakespeare's sonnets. Sonnets. Sorry about that. Um, so, so Miss Macintosh obviously is having like a psychic break at the time when uh, Vera finds her. And um, so she's saying, God loves you. There is no God. Um, but the true lover remembers everything. Why did I have this? There was no God, but the true lover re remembers everything. And the true, and so, okay, so she hears this. The true love is that which does not alter when it alteration finds. The true love wears an old shirt and is familiar. The wife is the key and the husband is the door which will not close. And there is no such thing as a new love in an old house. And there is no use barking at the wind, the waves, the shadows. The old ways are best because they have been tried. So this kind of answers what, how Vera ends up where she is at the end of the book. Because that's what she's been, Macintosh has trained her for, domesticity. That's what she's been, she said all along in the book, that's what she's been training her for, to be a good wife. Um, and that, that is where true love is. The, uh, the one who loves you through through all time, even though you age and grow old and everything, that's the one who loves you at the second, not the first time they see you, but the, you know, the second time they see you. Not that there's not problems, you know, not that there's not difficulties with this or problems, but that's kind of where, where Vera ends up at the end of the book. Um, a husband loves a silent wife. There is this thing about being, that, that's, that's the advice. <laughs> That's given uh, more than once um, to women. Uh, if you want a husband, yeah, they, they like it if you're silent. A husband loves a silent wife, and our innocence does not long outlive our modesty. And I should help her in those little tasks which were our plain domestic bliss. Vera wonders if Miss Macintosh is mourning a dead lover from her past, if she was her only lover, or if she was her only lover. For that love is love, which is love forevermore and unchanging, which does not alter with the changing circumstance and does not ebb, does not wane, and I should accept as ultimate the palpable disguise of the average man. Miss Macintosh, for she had, so Miss Macintosh has already told her, this is, you're, you're going to look for something average. You're not going to get anything special. <laughs> and that's going to be love. That's the, the answer to, uh, uh, to who should you love. Miss Macintosh, for she had always had her wits about her, loved only the physical things, cared not for spiritual pretense. We love no graven image. I should remember that those who fall in love are always blind and do not see the flaws, for common sense was just her greatest love. Vera laments, to whom should I have turned that sunlit morning, asking those personal questions which burned like low fires in my mind, questions as to the secret purpose of life, questions as to love and marriage and reproduction and death. So even though she's still struggling, and this is her quest, Ms. McIntosh gave her those answers. Um, Vera came up with, you know, and then Vera came to a couple conclusions on her own. And in the end, as far as to the question of love and the purpose of life and marriage and reproduction, I don't know about death, but uh, I think through Esther Longtree, that's kind of where, where uh, she gets her answer for death. Um, uh, that, that she does get her answers at the end of the book. By the end of the book. 
Mr. Spitzer, the only loved ones, let's see. Mr. Spitzer, the only loves were the loves he had never loved, those loves which, like my mother's vision, should exceed the human circumstance. Mr. Spitzer often passed his lonely evenings here talking of life and love, the life which was not lived, the love which was not loved. Mr. Spitzer often talks about his undying love for Catherine and his dead brother. He could not kill his love for Catherine, the paucity of lost events and lost loves, which controlled his every present thought or step. Almost any fool, including himself, could tell him that there was no time, that it was all this artifice, even like my poor mother's opium dreams of life and love and death, or her dream of some great coffin of stars which might contain the body of her love. Mr. Spitzer loved meditative pursuits, and Perone loved the cruelty of actual life. Butterflies were wanderers seeking reunion with immortal love. Mr. Butter, bleh, Mr. Spitzer used his silent music and memories of butterflies to console him of his great original disappointment, his failure to win the object of his love. Cousin Hannah tries to rescue Catherine from her dead loves. Cousin Hannah said that my mother was in love with no man on earth but with a fleeting shadow. She had said that my mother's love was dead, that she did not seem to know that death was necessary to my mother's love. Cousin Hannah spent all her life discouraging my mother's love of the dead man, Perone. Mr. Spitzer wanted to write on Cousin Hannah's marker, Here lies one who searched all her life for her dead love. Here lies the dead love of the world. Cousin Hannah had said there was no difference between Joachim and Prone Spitzer. It was Hobson's choice. It was a choice between death and death, not death and life, not death and love. Hobson's choice is a free choice in which only one thing is actually offered. The term is often used to describe an illusion that multiple choices are available. Should man be judged by the magnitude of his appearance, and could only the dead monster arouse my mother's awakening love? Cousin Hannah said she was a lover of woman, and she couldn't hate what she loved. Catherine is described as all her loves were imagination. All her loves had left her, and they had never been. No one had awakened the sleeping lady to life and love. The great lover is always the absent one. He is one whom no one has ever known or loved. Catherine was in love with opium and its illusions. She was the kind of woman who could love only the man she had never married. Love had died when she was married. Yet who had died for love of her? Men die of many reasons before they die of love. Only woman was capable of greatest love. Cousin Hannah tried to overthrow the, these loves, which were no loves of Catherine's. So Catherine had nothing to offer Vera, and then it's also, the point is driven home that Catherine only, Catherine has, Catherine doesn't have the capacity to love. She's in love with her illusions. Um, She's totally dependent at this time on uh, opium. And then Cousin Hannah is trying to say you don't need love. And that's kind of where Cousin Hannah goes with it trying to, in a sense, I guess, wake uh, Catherine up. Um, she's actually the one person who tries to confront her addiction and try to just tries to change it. But, but I think kind of it gets the feeling that the reason Hannah doesn't succeed is because Hannah's also not being true to herself. She's saying you don't need it and then you know you you can have this cause. You can dedicate your life to this cause and you won't need love in your life. And uh, I've heard that. I've you know we've heard I've heard some people say you know they'd say they they've not gotten married or something because they've dedicated their life to their work. Um so people have said that and lived by it, but in this case, um, Cousin Hannah is, is deceiving herself and others, as we find out later, that she in some way wanted love, wanted that, that marriage, that connection with another person. We don't know how or why it's not really explained, just knowing that that was there. Cousin Hannah seemed to be above all of this and did not need the greater love who would never depart, though little men should falter, should falter and fail. Cousin Hannah had never married or given to her true love. Her life did not include imaginary loves. Most people go to bed for love, but such an active lady would never have gone to bed for love. She would have gone to bed only to die. That one had always turned against oneself at every point. That one had gone against one's grain and loved what one had denied. That one had loved in secret what one had denied in public. In public, Cousin Hannah had only loved the suffrage movement. There's a side story about a eunuch who died because he loved the sheik's wife and was killed for it. Cousin Hannah wished to rescue the slave, not only the economic slave, but also the slave of love. 
Death might be the parent of love, or love might be the parent of death. Mr. Spitzer, Catherine, and Esther in the novel weep and mourn over people they have never no- they had never known. They have never known. They never had. And all small, and especially in Esther's case, all small things. Mr. Spitzer wished to keep my mother in this remote isolation, her love being absent. He was this obstacle, this darkness between my mother and her love, her dead love, it little mattering who that dead love might be, what face it wore. Every lover was a masked robber, robbing her of her pearls, which did not diminish in their number. Catherine had never wakened to life, to love. Love might wear the, wear the face of death, the green skull is dare Death might wear the face of love, the beautiful lady, as we might be other than we seemed, as we might not know ourselves, who stared at us, who caused this fear, or each person became his living opposite. She had loved that love which never was, yet was more powerful than any love which should be realized in this mortal sphere. Yeah, so she never found that and was, yeah, I guess when you're taken over and obsessed with something or addicted to something. That overrides everything else. Catherine says about Perone, if he had paid the slightest homage or recognition to her love, she might have questioned his feeble love. He had expressed his love by his silence, his distance. Death had surely given no voice to that which had not been expressed in life. His love had not been corrupted by its finding any form of vulnerable human expression. No vehicle or image had been great enough to express his love, that which had left him absolutely speechless, silent, withdrawn, remote. That which others thought was his hatred was his love. My mother believed his love greater than his hatred. He had been frightened by her beauty and her power. He had absolutely ignored her, for if he had come near, he would have been vulnerable, unable to resist the magnetism of her attractions, as he must must surely have understood. Should he ever, should he never ex- entered a battle, should he who never entered a battle lose it? Petty men could love in petty ways, but this unexpressed love was as heavy as all the stars. This dead love, which never was and never would be real, was the one undying love. So it's a really roundabout way of like, like, oh yeah, he doesn't love me because I'm too... Uh, it's, <laughs> I can see this in romance novels. You know, yeah, he didn't love me because I was just, you know, I was too much. He, you know, he would have been overpowered by me. <laughs> so, that's how Catherine thinks about Perot. Catherine thinks Cousin Hannah is this sterile suffrage misanthrope who had never loved. So Catherine doesn't fall for Cousin Hannah's uh, stuff. Catherine believed Mr. Spitzer, though he suffered from the vast reaches of unrequited love, as from the most delicate instances of that love which was not returned, that love which was itself illusion, less than the fabric of her dreams, and though he was this mourner for the impossible dead, and though her estimate of his tragedy had often sorrowed him, diminishing him his own sad eyes, for he had supposed that it was in the magnitude of tragedy that he had excelled. Catherine thought Cousin Hannah had paid a price for her lack of sorrow and lack of human love, her isolation from the heart of life. The love which had never come into being was a greater love than love, and there was greater passion in restraint than in passion, greater being in non-being, greater torment in no torment than in torment. Dreams which knew neither death nor time nor love, for no dream dies except into another dream. So even though Cousin Hannah's trying to help Catherine, Catherine knows that Cousin Hannah's not being truthful in that sense and that she's going to pay her price for this. So it's really interesting that like, Catherine can't love, or, or she does, but it's opium, it's illusions. Like she does love something, but it's, it's illusions, it's the dream. And so she knows uh, Cousin Hannah's, so like, yeah, no, Cousin Hannah's not the answer either. So those two are kind of like canceling each other out. Mr. Spitzer thinks Cousin Hannah's life may have been one long act of love, perhaps a ghostly love, but no less real because of being that. Perhaps it was a celestial love, where the nearest one might come to the devastating perfection, for she was not irrational like all great lovers or of all lost loves. Her great battle for woman's freedom from love or the ghost of love. Mr. Spitzer, always hopeful and hopeful most when he was discouraged most, would not have been surprised, therefore, to find a great love emerging at the last moment a secret man in Cousin Hannah's life. It is possible that death, like love, makes for drawing into a narrow house before the spirit flees or fails. Few can endure the absolute truth. Most must be self-deceived, perhaps by the very idea of time or memory or that ghostly love which never was and yet endured. Perhaps she came at this last hour to believe that death might be her life, her love. Chapter 43 starts the longest, densest use of the word love in, in Mr. Spitzer and Cousin Hannah's 
part. Cousin Hannah is asking after her love, her sleeping love, her dead love, her lost love. Did they arise from some deeper necessity than time, time which was as thin and superficial as a sheath of ice upon a brook where the tinkling water ran, this artifice a man might see beyond, knowing that it was he who was the creator of time and circumstance and memory and love? None should see the face of love and live. Should she find love only after she found death? Life's problems did not decrease when the great paradox was yawning in her face. Death said not what it intended, for its intentions were over along with all lack of realizations. Death required no image, no body of love. Who should awaken the dead to life and love when the great mystery was over? Cousin Hannah describes her love as my wild swan girl. This may be a reference to Leda and the Swan, which is a story and subject and art from Greek mythology in which the god Zeus, in the form of a swan, rapes Leda. According to later Greek mythology, Leda bore Helen and Polydeus, children of Zeus, while at the same time bearing Castor and Clytemnestra, children of her husband Tyndareus, the king of Sparta. According to many versions of the story, Zeus took the form of a swan and raped Leda on the same night she slept with her husband, King Tandarius. In some versions, she laid two eggs from which the children hatched. So then, because of uh, the reason I put all of this in here is that you have Catherine with this, and because of the double twins being born, you have Joachim and Perone and Esther and Rosemary, and so they may also represent these sets of twins. There are some characteristics I've mentioned at another time about Castor, uh, about Castor and Polydesis, and then Helen and Clytemnestra. Um, is this love or is this death which avails me? Mr. Spitzer was surprised and disturbed by Cousin Hannah's confession of love, eternal love, even when he could not be sure who was the lover and who was the loved, for all things were transitory, and it did seem that she was in her last hour, was that she... <laughs> Stop it. That she, in her last hour, was making a parody or false image of life just when life was fading or had faded already so far as the limits of experience were concerned. She who had never been faithful to any merely human life or love, she who had perhaps required a greater love than life could offer, a greater passion, a greater cause, she who would have felt restricted by marriage as if it were the grave, and she, and should she be burdened by the ideal of truth when she was crumbling into lies, visions, dreams, phantoms. And did man ever see his love or woman see her love? All earthly imagery was slowly dying. Am I falling to death or love, eternal love, or am I awakening? Death might be her life, her love, her whisper in the darkness, she whispered, for should love be extinguished by death? False modesty killed by love. Should he be surprised by this last logic of her life, by this ambivalence splitting her apart from the lover and the loved? For all had begun, as he might say, with ghostly love, and all had ended no doubt with the same, that ghostly love, which was the beginning of love, like the love of the troubadour for the dead love, false lady, love founded on death. That residue of mystery or love time could not kill, for it had never existed in time. As for cowardice in the face of great obstacles, that subject seemed to him as complex, as complicated as human love, not easily understood." Death happened in many ways, more ways than love, some which were quite subtle, some which were bold. Mr. Spitzer said he had once found an old seashell written over with a mystical writing, For all dead loves, this is the quote that's the same as the beginning of the book, dedication as the beginning of the book, For all dead loves and all remembered things, I have traveled through many seas, which is the same as dedication by Young at the beginning of the book. So she dedicated the book to herself. <laughs> she kind of dedicated the book to the book. Um, is this as it was, ever will be? Is there only this dying moment? Must not the lover die of love? Perhaps he knew most of love who never loved, and he knew most of death who never died. Mr. Spitzer thought he knew most of marriage who never married. He was never committed to one road which had its ending, for sometimes the happiness of married couples was so secretive, so remote, that it was as if they had withdrawn from life. It was as if they were dead, locked in an everlasting embrace. So I kind of see that with it being removed, with married people being removed. Okay, this is just going on and on and on. <laughs> there is no way. That section between uh, Cousin Hannah and Mr. Spitzer is long. Uh, I was in I 
was interested that there were love letters, like Vera finds the dead girl's love letters and Cousin Hannah writes and answers love letters. So I included that. Um, and then it keeps going on and on and on with Mr. Spitzer. And then we flip back to um, Vera and Miss McIntosh. Uh, I had never loved her in this life and I might love her only in this death when she was no more, when she had faded into all that she had protested against, when she herself should be the phantom of a dead love, a face none, no one quite remembered. I would have loved, okay, I should have believed in her, though reluctantly even more, and though not even not then realizing it, should have loved her through her very error and because of her deprivation, such as every life must still know, I would have loved the imperfection because I could not love perfection. And Ms. McIntosh says, love has shut many a woman's mouth. Okay, and then uh, Mr. Bonebreaker has a couple things about love. Uh, after Miss McIntosh dies, Vera's told, they said that when I was as old as they were, I would understand that love cannot really die. They said that I would know that that which was found could never be lost. Uh, Dr. O'Leary has some things to say about love, and then we get into Esther Longtree. idea. Okay, so Esther... Thus Esther had been born of distances, not because of necessity, but, but because of doubt, not because of the love of unthinking flesh, but because of the love of an arid idea. So there's this love of reason that's in Plato's discourse. Um, so I like that, they, that she was making a distinction uh, about how she was born. Um, she goes on and on and on. Maybe the dead love the dead, and that was the way the world went on. Oh yeah, this was this is the one great, one good one. Like, her ignorance had protected her, for if she had fought against her pregnancy even before realizing what it was, yet at the same time as fighting, she had submitted to it because love was greater than she was. This had been her great, great difficulty to fight against the symptoms that she loved. She would go on here with her pregnancy and her love for the living and for the dead. Maybe the dead loved the dead, and that was the way the world went on. And then in the last chapter, there's still a lot about love. She was mourning, Vera says, I was mourning in, for three deaths, that I was in love with an older love than memory provided. Which I don't know who that, what that is. I was, I was in love with an older love than memory provided. Um... Uh, that we get the beautiful part, beautiful romantic part about Mr. Spitzer declaring his love to Catherine, but and then when he thinks that he's she's hurt him, she's already died, for she was dead and died at the beginning of his whispers. Um, Vera says her love was late in coming, coming only as she was going. My love could come only when I saw beyond the surface of character, when I saw that mediocrity has also its power to crumble into the most phantasmagoric dream that man has dreamed. Um. Whatever is average is the dream. Whatever is hidden is the revealed. So Vera falls in love with the stone-deaf man. Well, while she's listening to him talk about Lucy Bell, a lover who has jilted him. So it was the stone-deaf man I loved should ever love. He with his musical voice rolling through silence. As I heard him who could not hear me. And yet what difference if there was the communication of love and long enchantment in the sleeping world. I loved him as a mother might love a child, which is kind of weird. I loved him as a woman loves a man. I loved him for the silences and for all the tongues of silence speaking the name of love. I loved the silent traveler in a silent world, world which, though all the bells should gong at once, should be silent for him. He had traveled all over America and had never heard a traffic horn. Perhaps there was love in that thought. And the silence had its tongues, and love came before words were, ever will be, and the darkness loves you, and there is darkness when you close your eyes, and the silence hears you, and we be the silences because we are all loves, all our loves. That's the black woman speaking to, to um, the stone deaf man. Uh, Vera says, oh, let me put this. 
spelled out my name upon my lover's hand for surely a woman must find some way by which to talk to the silence that she loved a man wanted to be married to the girl he loved Vera says they would be married and invite all of nature and Esther Longtree for she was also our love all her loves and she was the mother of the stillborn clapping their hands in clouds and she loved us all and all things hurt or silent or broken or dead or living and we were all so much like her little children that we might have been the children of her dreams Esther Longtree would be me. So she was not going to, I don't know if it's something like not giving up hope on the world, having the symphony, sympathy, uh, or don't, I don't really know if we can call it empathy. Maybe empathy or sympathy. I'm not really sure. Um, for all living things, all dead things, and not lose that because Esther Longtree, the one sin the little toy salesman ha uh, makes is that he can no longer cry. He can no longer look at the world and look at things uh, that die or are broken or hurt uh, and shed a tear. Like he can't, he just can't. He has no sympathy. He has no capacity for sympathy or empathy and he cannot cry. And Esther Longtree says you have to uh, be able to shed at least one tear. Like you just have to. You cannot live without doing that and so Vera embraces that she embraces what Miss McIntosh has taught her about marriage and love um, um, I don't know about Mr. Spitzer I don't know about the death part I don't know about d death and Mr. Spitzer that goes on a lot I mean it's, I can't read it I mean it's just I would need a whole other episode to read all of it you're just gonna have to read it in the book <laughs> but um uh that's all in there too and then she falls in love with him while he's talking about another lover that Vera falls in love with a stone deaf man because he's talking while he, because he's talking about a, another lover that's shielded him I think it's pretty cool um, yeah so those are the lines we get at the end of the book so yeah I had to skip over a lot I mean it's just there's a lot okay all right so we will go on to St. Augustine because uh and the uh, city of God that's what it is all right thank you for listening um I will be back <laughs>